Please, if you just open your Bibles or your devices, <laughs> as the case may be, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to continue to teach this morning on a series we began several weeks ago on stewardship and giving. The last time I was with you, we spoke on grace giving. And so I'm going to pick it up from there and continue to talk about grace giving this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning from verse 1. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Thank you. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. This is my goal, my prayer for everyone in this room that we will get to the place where we will not be limited in our time, in our giving, and in our service to God. Amen. Where the grace that was upon the Macedonian church will be evident in and through us to where we are not giving of ourselves and of our substance on the basis of our ability. You see, if we limit ourselves to our ability, then it's no longer God's grace at work. Yeah. It's something I can do. This is my ability. And if it's my ability, then I don't need God. But Paul's exhortation to the Macedonian church is that, that no, rather, to the Corinthian church, is that that grace that was upon the Macedonians, what grace? the supernatural enablement of God that's causing this Macedonian church, and if you know anything about Macedonian church, they were poor people. Now, this is the amazing thing about God. These so-called poor people were not limited in what they could do for God on the basis of their social structure or social status. They may have been physically poor, but they did great things that took the command, the attention of Paul. They said, you know what, Corinthians, you need the grace that's upon these people. Verse 4. Imploring us with much urgency that we will receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Let me just say from the outset this morning that grace given is about how Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. This was one message that the entire early church understood 
and they believed that Jesus loved them and as a result of loving them, gave himself for them. So if anybody asks you, what is grace giving about? The answer is, grace giving is about how Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Now let me say this in a different way. Our position here at Workfine, our philosophy when it comes to giving at Workfine is to practice grace giving. Now, after I gave that message two, three weeks ago, a lot of people came to me and people spoke to me and I got all kinds of feedbacks from different various people. And my takeaway from the feedback I got is that we have, uh, how shall I say this? Most of us are kind of camping and emphasizing on what not to do. In other words, most of the feedback I heard had to do with the tithing issue. Do we tithe? Do we not tithe? Now, I don't want you to spend your attention on tithing. Talking about the tithing issue is an incomplete and misleading statement. Okay. I see. Let me, let me, let this, that bird just fly over everybody's head. It's landed now. Now I can continue. What I'm saying to you is, Avoid the controversy. The issue is not what you do not do. The issue is what do you do. So rather than focus on, oh, tithing, 10%, blah, 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 blah. Do we believe in tithing? I'll say rather, at work fine, we believe in grace given. Because when you approach it from that perspective, it covers all the spectrum. When you tell people, well, tithing is really not a New Testament practice. If you say that, and you don't have the time and the opportunity to sit them down and give them the full message, they leave you with the wrong impression. You have done them injustice. Let me say that one more time. When you only talk to people about the issue of tithing, whether they should tithe or not, whether it's a New Testament practice or not, if that's all you get a chance to tell them, and they walk away from you. You've done more damage to them than any good. Because you've given them an incomplete statement about the issue. And therefore, they can be misled. But when, and you guys will notice when I brought that message a couple of weeks ago. I spent a lot of time talking about grace giving before I ever got on the third issue. It was important for me to give you the correct uh, practice give you the right thing before I start talking about what is not right. If all you hear is what's not right and you leave, you are lost. So if anybody should ask you, what do we believe at Workfront? The correct answer is not, well, tithing is you, we don't really believe it. No, that's incorrect. That's incomplete. That's misleading. If anybody should ask you, what is our philosophy and our practice where it regards to giving at work fund. The current answer is, at work fund, we practice grace giving. Can you say that with me? Say, we, we practice, practice grace, grace giving. giving. Very simple. Very simple. Now, 
when you say it like that, you get people's attention. They want to know what is grace giving. I'm glad you asked. Now let me tell you what grace giving is. Grace giving is giving according to how God has given to us. Very simple. Let's say that again together, please. Because, now, I'm saying this not because I want to be a teacher or a tutor or because you are children. No, please, understand what I'm saying. I'm asking you to follow me. The reason I'm saying this is because when you say it with me, the more times you say it, the more it begins to get into you. Amen? Amen. I want it to become a part of who we are. I want it to become a part of what we understand and believe. Amen? So what is grace giving? Grace giving is giving according to has God has given us. One more time. Giving according to how God has given us. Simple. If God has not given you anything, you're not obligated. In fact, under grace giving, the issue is not an obligation. Under grace giving, the issue is being responsive to the grace of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the Bible says, we lay aside every Sunday according to how God has prospered you. That's the point. Under grace giving, we give according to how God has prospered you. Now, in order for us to fully establish that, let me go to Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1, 4, 5, and 7. Leviticus chapter 2. Give that to me, please. Ah. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. Now, under the Old Testament, God gave Israel five major offerings or sacrifices that they must give on a consistent basis. And each one of those five offerings were perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get into all of that now because I don't want to take away from what I'm saying. I just want to highlight this one offering. So the five offerings were the sin offering, the trespass offering, the meat offering, the peace offering, and the burnt offering. Five major offerings. And Jesus Christ, in his life and death, fulfilled all five. In other words, those five offerings were pointers. They pointed forward to what Jesus will come and do. The particular offering that I'm concerned about this morning is what we call the meat offering or other translations call it the meal offering found in Leviticus chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. Verse 1 says, when anyone offers a grain offering. Grain offering, meat offering, meal offering, the same thing. Depending on what translation you're reading from. When anyone offers a grain offering, told the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. So that's one. Verse four. And if you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in the oven, Please pay attention. This is critical. The point I'm about to make is very critical. If it's baking in the oven, then it tells you what to do. Verse 5. But if your offering is a grain offering, 
bake in a pan. He tells you what to do. Verse 7. If your offering is a grain offering, bake in a covered pan. He tells you what to do. The same offering, but five choices. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? This is the offering in the Old Testament which Jesus fulfilled that represents the giving of a substance. Grain, harvest, crop. This is the giving of the substance that God has blessed you with. But notice what God did. God did not tell them to bring the same thing. The offerings were of the same element. There was flour, where it's baked, fried, or whatever else you can do with it. But he gave them four options of how to bring this flour. Number one, you can bring the flour, just pure, ground, fine flour. No bacon, no frying. That's one option. Number two, we read in, in verse four, you can bring the flour, bake it in an oven. Number three, you can bring the flour, baked in a pan, or rather griddle. And number four, you can bring the flour, fried in a pan. Four different options of bringing the same flour. What's God trying to, what's the point God is getting across? God is saying, Brother Derek, you bring me an offering on the basis of your property. Do you own a griddle? Do you own a frying pan? Do you own an oven? Or you don't own anything? So, the fact that you don't have an oven, you're not left out. You bring fine flour. Or maybe you have a frying pan. God say, okay, fry it. It's fine. It's acceptable. Or you have a griddle. Good. Just bring. In other words, everybody brings something, but bring it according to your level. Oh, my God. You guys didn't hear me. Oh, hallelujah. So the issue under grace giving is not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. You didn't hear what I just said? Equal sacrifice. The man that only has flour. That's all he has. It must be ground and it must be fine. No clumps, no cuts. It's fine flour. Bring it, God says, good. Because you are bringing something according as to how I've blessed you. Go to some of these millennial homes these days. You see ovens there that talk to you. In fact, as you open your garage door, you can tell the oven, start cooking my whatever. <laughs> now, a man that has that, or a woman that has that kind of oven, compared to a person that has a frying pan, it's obvious there are different levels of societal living. Yeah. So God is saying, the more I have blessed you with, the more I'm holding you accountable for. Yeah. You can't have a Samsung oven that talks to you and bring me something that the guy that has a frying pan has. You are not giving me according as I have prospered you. Because if I did not prosper you, you cannot have an oven that's talking. Does that make sense? So the issue on that grace, God is not putting you under obligation. You must do this because if you don't do this, I put a curse on you. No! God is not cursing anybody. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. If you do not give, 
God is not cursing you. You miss out on the blessings of God. You miss out on the opportunity to enjoy God in his fullest. In fact, you are a misrepresentation of who God is because God is a liberal, generous God. So if you are a stingy person, you are not acting like your father. But even in all of that, God does not put anyone under a curse. So we've already established, how did God give to us? Give me Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Because we say that grace giving is given according to how God has prospered us. Or according to how God has given to us. Now the question then is, how? How did God give to us? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. Now, this is the reason we are taking these teachings next year. When you see the scripture, Christ lives in me, what does that mean to you? How do you, how do you deal with that? When the Bible says Christ lives in you, it's in you right now. For many of us, we read it, we hear this, but we don't understand the practical working out of this deep truth. Is that Pastor Charles? It's good to see you, my friend. Even friend Yuchuku himself is in the house. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. But Christ lives in me. Now, watch this. And the life which I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? I live by the faith of the Son of God. What did the Son of God do? Who loved me and gave himself to me. Say, Jesus loves me. You are not saying like you mean it. Do you really believe that? Jesus, he loves me. Me, me, me. I don't know about you. Jesus loves me. I am his special creation. I am the delight of his pleasure. He sings over me with joy. Hallelujah. Jesus, this morning, God has a bite. I love you. Hallelujah. You look good. I love you. I've blessed you. I'm going to walk in you, talk in you, move in you. Yes. Jesus loves me. That's how I like that little, those little songs of those days. Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. For the Bible tells me so. Hallelujah. He loves me. Yes. Paul says, because he loves him, he gave himself for him. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And so let's just unpack some scriptures this morning. Let's go to John chapter 3, 16. And look at some observations. How did God give to us? He gave to us because he loved us and gave himself for us. In John 3, 16, is a very, very popular scripture. Everybody knows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, in that one simple verse of scripture, there are a couple of observations I want to point to. Number one, from John 3, 16, we see that God's giving is motivated by love. God gave because God loved. Do you see that in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, what did he do? 
He talked about it? No. He did a drama about it? No. Ah, for God so loved the world, he gave. That love prompted him to do something. So that's number one. God's giving is motivated by love. Number two, again from John 3, 16. God's giving is sacrificial in that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't have two of them. He didn't have three of them. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. His giving was sacrificial. Number three, in 1 John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16, we see this born out. Give me 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. This passage describes how we recognize love. It says, by this we know love. How? How do we know love? Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, what the Bible is saying here is he laid down his life. What does that mean? What Jesus did for me and you was voluntary. Nobody forced him to do so. He laid down his life. He freely, voluntarily gave his life up. Powerful. And we are encouraged to do likewise. This is the major difference between grace giving and the traditional church tithing. Under the traditional church tithing, you are obligated. Preachers will come to the pulpit and say, if you don't give, because of the cost. Be careful. The suffering is in the world. You crack the wall and just bite you. Yeah, they put you on a they put you on a threat. They put you on a threat. God is not doing that today. There was a time and day, a dispensation when that was what God did. How God moved in Israel, but not today. Not today. It's voluntary. It's voluntary. Now, number four. Number four. Going back to John 3.16, we can infer that giving is major proof of love. For God so loved the world, he gave. So giving was a major proof of love. We can voice our love for someone by saying, I love you. And as men, you cannot say that enough to your wives. Are there any men in the house this morning? Man, this, this tough... This tough looking men's faces, man. Some of these men are looking at me. You better shut up talking about that love. <laughs> we can verbalize our love. We can say, I love you. That is good. But that is not enough. It isn't enough. That love that we vocalize or verbalize must be followed with action. 1 John 3.18. Let me read it very quickly. 1 John 3.18. The Bible says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
What will it be like if Jesus stayed in heaven? And you say, I love you guys. You have a good time with Satan. Let it kick your body a little bit. I love you, I love you, I love you. And just remain in heaven. What would that do for us? What will you do for a wife, for the husband to say, I love you on the phone, but never come home? Yeah. Folks, this is serious. This is very important. Yeah. I see some people in this congregation, and I notice the commitment and the sacrifice you've paid for your families. Yeah. True story. They are here among you. My sister, Eloy Kimbala, stayed home for years while raising her children. She's qualified. She went to school. But she made a choice to stay at home and keep the kids and safeguard the family. That's love speaking. Kamisa Deke has a master's degree. Master's. Master's degree. Stayed at home, raised the kids. Why? Because she's speaking in volume. She's saying to those students, you are my biggest and greatest investment. I will lay down my life, my career, so that you guys can have a better chance at, at, at living. Yeah. Where's Kenny? I saw her earlier. Kenny, are you she's still here? Oh, right there. She's hiding. Has a great job in Nigeria. Retired early. Came to the United States to take care of her family. That's love speaking volumes. Now, there are many more of you that have done the same thing, but I'm sorry I don't know everybody. So I may not mention your name, but please don't get upset over that. It's just that I don't have information on my roller decks. <laughs> but you get the point I'm making. Parents love their families enough, they are willing to do whatever it took. Not just by saying it or writing in the book, but by taking action that set the course to make sure those kids have a better life. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what he's asking us to do now for him. Last thing I want to say about this observation from 1 John chapter 4 verse 9. The Bible says we love God because he first loved us. Watch this. We love God because God first loved us. So what happened? God so loved the world, he gave his help in son. John 3.16. But God's, not just so, S-O. My translation. God so, S-O-O-O-O-O to infinity. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Begotten Son. So God is now saying to you and I, for me and you now so love God, we freely give back to him. Do you understand that? Yes. That is the essence of grace giving. What can we give God this morning that God deserves? Please give me that scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, from the Passion Translation. What can we give God that God deserves? There's only one thing we can give God right there. Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? God. 
If it's not for God's mercy, some of us won't be here now. I know for sure I, Bank Akmala, will not be here. All my friends that we used to run around with, they're either dead or in prison. True story. Every last one of them. Here in, I'm not talking about in, in Africa. I'm talking about here in Atlanta, Georgia. All my parting bodies, all of them, either in prison or in the grave. Am I better than them to be alive? The mercy of God. Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? Answer, I encourage you to surrender yourself to God to be sacred living sacrifices. That's what the Macedonian people did. They just didn't come to God and just give him $10, $1,000, $10,000 to assist to think you can buy God. No. I encourage you to surrender yourself to God to be sacred living sacrifices. And live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart. For this becomes your genuine expression of worship. Surrender of self. That's what the Macedonians did. It's not just a matter of God getting his hand in your pocketbook or your checkbook to get money from you. No. God is not trying to raise money. He's trying to raise people. It's not a fundraiser. It's a people raiser. Yes. But it starts by the giving of ourselves. Yes. The Macedonians could not give the way they gave in generosity if they first didn't give themselves. Because once you're giving yourself, money is no longer an issue. But money is an issue because we have not fully surrendered or given ourselves to God. Amen? Amen. Now, The lack of appreciation of God's sacrificial love for us will make our love shallow. This is the difference in the first generation Christians. The first generation Christians were willing to lay their lives down. You know why? Because they saw what Jesus did. They were there. The language of the first generation Christians was, and I quote, he loved me and gave himself for me. That was their language. The early church, the first generation of Christians, they understood God loves me and he gave his life for me. They understood that. They understood that. How? Why? Many of them saw him on the cross. They were familiar with his passion. For you and I, we are trying to break barriers and break culture to understand what the cross meant. No, for them, no. It was not an enigma. They knew. They knew what the cross, people being crucified was a tradition. It happened regularly. So they understood what the cross meant. God help us in the church today. We are preaching a bloodless cross. Making the cross a wonderful thing. Many of you right now, as I'm speaking, are wearing the cross on your neck? Whereas, 
If you are there when Jesus was crucified, the cross was nothing appealing that you want to wear on your neck. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was a place of agony. A place of suffering. A place where the Son of God was crucified. The early church understood that and they appreciated what Jesus did because they recognized that every beating he took and every pain he went through, he did it for them. They understood the exchange. So God help us. So for the early church, they were not quibbling over percentages. Do I give 5%? Do I give 10%? Do I give 15%? Do I give 20%? Oh, let me do God a favor. I'll give 25%. They were not quibbling. Percentage was not an issue. They knew what? He loved me and gave himself for me. They understood that. What price would you pay if the court found you guilty and sentenced you to death and the judge just allowed someone to die in your stead? Just in the natural. Can you, can you just fathom that? That you went to court and you just said, condemned to death. And he said, okay, by the way, if there's anybody in this courtroom who's willing to die instead, I'll take it. And somebody step forward and say, I'll do it. What will be your emotion for the person's family who took your place? How would that rock your world that somebody has died in your stead? And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Yeah. There is nothing you have that I have that he has not given. Mm. All silver and all gold it belongs to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yes. You know. So why do we find it so difficult? To understand how much he loved us that he gave himself for us. The issue is like the early church you and I need to become God lovers. Just that simple. God lovers. That's the difference. God is looking for a few God lovers. You know, the army used to have the slogan, looking for a few good men. God is looking for a few good, or rather a few God lovers. Because with God lovers, nothing will stop them. Now, understand you cannot walk, walk up this in your emotion. You cannot become a God lover because you will to do so. Yeah. You can only become a God lover because you first appreciate his love to you. Yeah. First John 4, 9. We love God because he first loved us. It is as you appreciate how much he did for you, you can truly not fully become recipient and you can reciprocate in God's love for us. Let's just look at a couple of examples of God lovers in the scriptures. As I begin to close. In 2 Samuel chapter 24. Verse 24. 2 Samuel 24, 24. I will not read it. I will just tell you. David had a chance. To receive the threshold of Arwana. The man offered it to him freely. This is my threshold fraud. You can do it. You can have it. Do anything you want to do with it. Then the king said to Arwana. No. But I will surely buy from you for a price. He was not looking for a freebie. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, with that which costs me nothing. 
my goodness. Do you hear the sentiment of King David? I will not just go through my stuff and bring and find God and just offer him something. No. I am going to give to God that which cost me something. Is that my attitude and your attitude this morning? What are you offering to God? You spend your best hours, your best time in watching Netflix, Showtime. And when you go, get good, tired, and groggy with sleep, God, you give your beloved sleep. And you cause you call them to dwell in safety. See you tomorrow morning, God. Amen. Hallelujah. Is that our attitude? Do we give him our best? In our time? In our treasure? Or in our talents? David said, I would not give to God that which cost me nothing. If it doesn't cost me, I've not given. First Chronicles 29. Talking about God lovers. David is now preparing to build a temple. Look at this guy's heart. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 3. Look at David's heart. The Bible tells us, God has already told him, David, you will not build a temple for me. You are a man of war. But I'm going to ordain and give the grace for your son Solomon to build it. Now, when you read that passage, please don't misunderstand that God did not allow David to build it because David was a sinner. That's not true. That's not true. Every war David fought, God sent him. Oof. Let me leave that alone. God sent him to war. But you must understand God's dispensation. There's a time for war and there's a time for rest. So David, you are faithful in warning. Now, in Solomon's time, it'll be a time of peace. A time of rest. You don't war in rest and you don't rest in war. They don't mix. So David, you will not build it. But there's one thing you can do. Prepare for your son that will build it. Look at what David said. Give me verse 3. Verse 3. Thank you. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God. Whew, I'm lovesick. David said, I'm lovesick. I'm not going to build it. But Solomon, I'm going to be there right along with you. Whatever you need to get it done. Why? Because of my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. My own special treasure of gold and silver. Does that sound like 10% to you? No. Ah, you guys talk back to me. Does that sound like 10%? No. Does this sound like a person that's quibbling over percentage? No. no. Over and above. Can you imagine the church that Jesus gave his life for? We are still fighting, what, 10%? Infantile discussion. Discussion that infants should be having. 10% of a God that says all the silver and all the gold, they are mine. The one that owns the cactus on a thousand hills. 
unbelievable. It's because we don't know who we are. And we don't know whose we are. This is David in the Old Testament. Special treasure of gold and silver. How about Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. I'm almost done. Just give me a few, a couple of more minutes. Luke chapter 19. Thank you. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. On. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was rich. Contemporary times, times this guy is the, is the RIS director. <laughs> RIS director. Can you imagine that? In the Roman Empire, they, are, they were more corrupt than Mexico and Nigeria. <laughs> Let me just balance it out. Under the Roman Empire, Empire, those guys were hugely corrupt. Zacchaeus will say, your taxes is uh, uh, $100, but just give me 20 We, we, we just we settled it here. Everything was settled on the, on the side of the street. I, I wonder where they learned that from. Okay, let, let, let me move on. <laughs> Verse 3. <laughs> and he sat to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Rose, that vision is going to come to pass. Sycamore. Stand up, girl. Come here. Your husband had a vision about Sycamore. And I just want you to know that the vision is just for an appointed time. Amen. Wait for it. Amen. And so, Father, we release your grace. You, who is the God of generations, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will pass it on. As David prepared the way for Solomon, Peter has prepared the way. And it will be done in Jesus' name. Praise God. Mm, mm, mm. And when Jesus came to the place, don't miss this, what's about to happen? He looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today, he didn't say, I will. Please, all you guys that went to Braptigia, you are English uh, major. <laughs> Grammar is your thing. Do you, is there a difference between I will come to your house or I must? Huh? Aha, there's a difference. It just confirmed it. There's a difference. <laughs> I went to night school. I may be wrong. So that's why I had to. <laughs> I must stay at your house. Yeah. Why must I stay at your house, Zacchaeus? Your record from heaven just got downloaded to me. You need something. You are the despised of all men in Jerusalem. People don't like you because of your business. You're a tax collector. You are despicable. You are corrupt. Yes, you are very corrupt. People can't stand your corrupt nature. You have no friends because of the business you are in. But I came to rock your world today. 
I'm not just going to come to your house. I must because your number has come up. God wants to change your destiny. He wants to change the narration of your life. I'm going to come into your life and change everything around. I'm going to give you a love encounter that is going to change your destiny. I must stay at your house. Please give me that verse again. Verse 5 again. I want to make sure I said it correctly. Notice what Jesus said. It is that I must come to your house. Oh my God. Tonya, did you see that? It is that I must come to your house. I must stay. This is not going to be a fleeting visit. I'm not coming to go. I must stay. I'm going to pack right there. And I'm going to stay. Because you are going to be in me. I'm going to put you in me. I must stay. At your house. Jesus is not, not making a visitation. He's making a habitation. Habitation. He wants to pack and stay in your house. Verse 6. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when he saw it, they all complained. Uh -huh. The religious folks, uh -huh. saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Now, here's the point here about God lovers. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. Now, we know what that means because the Bible says, he that gives to the poor lends unto the Lord. What made him do it? Did he hear John Anfancini teach on the seven steps of prosperity? Has he read Kenneth Copeland's book on prosperity? Did he hear Bank Akimala's teaching on grace giving? None of that. But the encounter with the love of God prompted a response from him that nobody solicited. Don't tell me about being a God lover and you're stingy. It is mutually exclusive. You cannot be like that. If you're stingy, you don't know the love of God yet. We are praying for you that you, you, the love of God will catch up with you. This is a sinner. Pure, validated, born of fit sinner. But when he came across the love of God, he didn't need an offering basket. Out of his own mouth, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I destroy it fourfold. Woo! How many Zacchaeus are in house this morning? I know you won't dare, you won't dare, you won't dare show who you are, but God knows who you are. But the point I'm making is, when you become a God lover, giving becomes no issue for you any longer. I'm almost done. Please. In Mark chapter 10 verse 21, we see Jesus counseling the rich young ruler. 
Thank you very much. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. Now this young ruler came to Jesus and said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the law. But the guy said, oh, the law, yeah, I've done it all. He said, one thing you lack. Go and sell your goods. Give it to the poor. Follow me. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up now, the last time when I spoke on this subject, I gave you the example of the early church. And I told you that the standards under grace is higher than the standards under the law. Yes. Yes. Amen. The standard under grace is higher than under the law. Under the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, I say that if you look at a woman with loss in your heart, you've already done it. Now, which one is tougher? Under the law, you have to take off your trouser, go to the room, and do it. Jesus said, under grace, you can be right here in the church right now, and you're committing adultery. But just looking at a woman wrongfully. Which one is harder? Absolutely. The standard under grace is higher. I want you to understand that because I don't want you to say, oh, well, no, I don't have to give 5%, 10%, 20%. It's easier to... Grace is higher. The standard is tougher. Now, the reason is, under grace, God enables you. It supplies the help you need to live above all of those issues. But in Acts chapter 4, we saw something happen. And the suggestion was made that those guys in the early church were giving like they gave because they were under communism. That is not correct. Acts chapter 4, the Bible talks about how the grace of God came upon the church. And as a result of that grace, they sold properties, they sold land, and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet to distribute as anyone had need. I just showed you the scripture in Mark chapter 10. What they did in Acts was what God prescribed in Mark chapter 10. Did you miss that? Okay, you guys missed that. When Jesus told the ruler, you want eternal life, you want to follow me? Go sell your goods. Give to the poor. What he said in Mark 10 was exactly what they did in Acts chapter 4. Last verses and Acts chapter 5. In other words, when the grace of God came upon that church, in the early church, it was a spontaneous response. They just felt, wow, the God that loved me and gave him some for me, I cannot withstand to see my brother has a need. I'll do whatever I need to do to make sure that need is met. No, it was not communism. It was a move of God. It was the grace move of God upon the hearts of the people. Communism is something that, that people, they, they formulate. They, they come together and say, this is a form of government. No, these guys were living under Rome. They were living under Rome. But the point is, the grace of God was so strong in that church, they could not withstand to see a person has a need and they don't do anything about it. How do we become God lovers? How do we become God lovers? Give me Romans 8.32 in a TPT. I'm almost done. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 32. In the Passion Translation. There we go. How do I become a God lover? Watch this. For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure. The gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as a sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold him, or rather he certainly won't withhold from any help. Oh, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. So how do I become a God lover? I must appreciate the love of God. How does that happen? I need to think about the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ meaning his crucifixion. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 1 and 2, that he does not want to know anything among us except Christ crucified. And so what I've done, in order to help us bridge that gap, I want to show you a one minute, 51 second video clip of what the crucifixion was about. So that we can bridge that gap in our mind and have a better appreciation for what price Jesus paid for us. Can you dim the lights? And let's go, just go to the thing. Thank you. Every crime against humanity, every genocide, every unspeakable act of oppression and tyranny, every act of terrorism, every starving nation ignored, Every drop of martyred blood. Every orphan and widow abandoned. Every stranger in need passed by. Every deviant and perverse lifestyle. Every marriage torn asunder. Every word uttered in hate. Every injustice. Every theft. Every grudge. Every bitterness. Every lust, every fear, every lie, every doubt, every one. Oh, the weight of the cross. Oh, the strength of the one who bears it. this morning or this afternoon. You may be here, you're not born again. You don't have an appreciation of God's love for you. I want you to know that Jesus paid the price in full to bring you into the family of God. I would not want you to come to church and leave this place without giving you the opportunity to get your life right with God. Today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus paid the price in full. So if there's anybody here right now that says, you know what, God, I want to get my life right with God. I want to give you the opportunity. Every pain, 
every bruise, the blood that was shed was shed for you and I. If you and I were the only one on the face of this earth, Jesus would still have done what he did. You don't need to come here and live with your sins. He wants to save you. And the plan of salvation is very simple. All God is asking you to do is just to believe in what Jesus has already done and accept it. With every head bowed right now and eyes closed, if there's anybody here that says, Pastor, pray with me. I want to be born again. I will take the pleasure in doing that right now. Is there anybody here right now that says, you know what? I want to know God. I want to be born again. If that's you, signify. Raise up your hand and I'll be glad to pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody? Okay, so maybe you are born again already. But the full weight of what Jesus did has not fully dawned on you. You have a head knowledge about how much God loves you. But you do not have an appreciable knowledge or depth of the sacrifice he made in your behalf. I said, God, help me. I want to pray for you as well. You don't need to signify. You don't need to raise your hand. I'm just going to pray for you now. And I just want you to receive that prayer and believe it. So, Father, I thank you for this privilege of sowing the seed of your word in the house of your people. You are the one that said in 1 John 4, 9 that we love you because you first loved us. Our challenge is, God, we really don't know how much you love us because yes it's written in scripture but it's not become experiential to us and so I pray that for this your people your flock that you open the eyes of their understanding that they come to grip with the realization of how deep and how much and how great you love each one of us let us not miss this fact of your love that Paul describes the length, the width, the depth, and the height of your love that surpasses knowledge that brings us to the fullness of God. And so, Lord God, I thank you. Thank you for every man, every woman, every child that we come to that realization. And as a result, we begin to respond to you in loving you back. We thank you for your love. We embrace your love. We bless you for your love. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.